I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you were helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Well, we're starting a uh, series today, obviously, on the book of Exodus. Uh, And uh, I think it would be probably fair to say that for most of the history of the world, uh, Christians have not been, or God's people have not been in charge politically. Uh, and, and it's probably fair to say that what we've experienced in the West and in Australia in the last few centuries uh, is an historical anomaly. It's, it's strange, it's unusual. Uh, most of us are kind of used to our society, I suspect, having uh, a Christian flavour of some kind. Uh, most of us are kind of used to some measure of respect for Christian values and Christian churches and Christian organisations. But that's unusual. Uh, you don't have to look very far to see uh, that that's not true in lots of places today and that it hasn't been true in lots of places in history. Uh, you might think of the Middle East, for example, uh, or parts of Asia. Uh, if you think back to recent history, there have certainly been times in the last century uh, where Christians have been oppressed, like communist Russia or uh, Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge. 
And going further back in history, there have been many times where Christians have been under the authority of people who had no respect for God or for them. Uh, And while our situation, I think, in Australia is still very good, by God's grace, it's still true, I think, that there have been lots of things happening in the last few years that have... Uh, that have changed things. So there's some worrying trends, some seismic shifts that might suggest that the situation for us here in Australia uh, and in the West in general could change quite rapidly. Well, it's encouraging, I think, then, that the book of Exodus begins in a situation where things are not great. Uh, it begins with the people of God under oppression for the, from people who have no respect for God and no respect for God's people. And because of that, I think it has a lot to say to us It has a lot to say to us in our shifting cultural setting. Uh, It has a lot to say to us about how we can be faithful and how we can trust God, even when we're not the ones who are in control, even when we're not the ones who are being uh, respected or or, or considered, and even when we're not the ones who are in control, not of society, but even of our own lives. But beyond that, it also has, I think, a lot to say about God's commitment to rescue and to save a people for himself, to save people from every tribe and language and people and nation, uh, to save them out of misery, to save them out of evil, to save them out of slavery, not uh, physical slavery, slavery, but slavery to sin, uh, and to save them from everything that stands against uh, God uh, and his purposes for his world well, before it gets into the details of the events of, uh, of the time that it narrates, Exodus first gives us this snapshot of, uh, of what God has done in the history of his people up to this point. Uh, in the first few verses, we're given the names of a number of the key people who had come to Egypt a number of generations before. So, uh, in the first few verses, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob each one with his family, and it lists all those people who went with him. You might remember uh, back in Genesis, at the end of Genesis, God raised up the man Joseph to be the second in charge over all of Egypt. Uh, Eventually, because of the famine in their own country, Joseph's father and brothers and, and wider family then had to come to Egypt, they had to leave where they were, and they had to come to Egypt to live with Joseph. Uh, and the number of people who'd come out of that was, was 70, which is a large number. But by the time we get to Exodus, that number has just exploded. Uh, it's exploded and they're kind of almost taking uh, control of uh, the land of Egypt. So we read in verse 6, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So God's people have come out of their own place to Egypt a long time ago and now they've just exploded in number and they've filled the the land of Egypt. That was a fulfillment of what God had promised. So God had told Abraham way back in Genesis 15 that he would, in, in very similar language, that God would multiply Abraham, he would multiply his descendants uh, that his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in the sky. That is vast, innumerable, uncountable. But it's actually also a fulfillment of the charge that God had given Adam and Eve way back in Genesis chapter 1 when he'd told them to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, as Exodus begins, the writer of Exodus, God wants us to know that he is doing exactly what he's promised. He's doing what he promised to Abraham, but actually in some way, 
He's even beginning to restore in a small way his purposes for which he created the world. He's beginning to do what he charged Adam and Eve with doing, but which had been wrecked by our rebellion against God. What God is doing through this one people, through the descendants of Abraham trapped in Egypt, is part of this bigger program, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, this program to put the world back together again and to free it from sin and evil. But no sooner have we kind of recognized that that's the setting, that is that God is is fulfilling his promises in Egypt, no sooner do we discover that, that we discover that this promise is under threat, it's at risk. The prosperousness, the success of God's people leads to the Egyptians kind of freaking out and, and starting to worry about what's going to happen to them. So they say in verse 8, or, or, or we told in verse 8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. They're afraid that they're going to be swamped, they're going to be overtaken by, uh, by these Israelites. And so they do uh, the thing that, that humans always do in that situation, they, they take the worst possible course of action. That is, they oppress them, and by doing that, they actually stir up the kind of animosity which will ultimately be uh, their downfall. They oppress them mercilessly. Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced, labors, uh, forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kind of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly they do everything in their power to try and crush the spirit of god's people they enslave them they force them to work they make their lives miserable but notice what the outcome of that oppression is look at verse 12 but the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread so the egyptians came to dread the israelites so they try to crush them try to stop them but what happens is they just, it, it, it unleashes things even more. It's like, uh, you know, if there's, a, if there's an oil fire and you think, oh, great, so we'll just throw a bucket of water on that, try and put it out. Not a good idea. Uh, what happens is it just, it goes everywhere, doesn't it? Just, it spreads. It's the worst thing you can possibly do. And that's what it's like, what happened here with the Egyptians. They think, yeah, let's, let's try and stop this. Let's try and oppress them. But actually, by God's power, it, it it has the opposite effect. The people of Israel, who had uh, the people of Egypt, had forgotten who the Israelites were, and they were pitting themselves then against the promises of God. But Exodus one shows us that already we know what's going to happen. A lot of the stuff that's going to happen later, but already the plans of Egypt were no match for the power of God, and even as. The Egyptians were oppressing God's people. God was continuing to do what he had promised. And the same is, is still true for us today, I think. Uh, people can throw all kinds of obstacles against us and against the people of God, against God's plans and purposes, but it doesn't stop God's plans. It doesn't stop what God has intended to do. It's not going to stop God from building his people from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You might have heard that saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What is that getting at? It's getting at this very idea, isn't it? That people come along and they say to themselves, I am going to stop the church in its tracks. I'm going to do that by, by oppressing people, by killing people. And what does it recognise, that saying? It recognises that often when that happens, that's when the church grows. Not always, sometimes, sometimes things end badly. But often it's the case that in God's sovereign power, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As people try and uh, oppress the church through evil, God is building his church powerfully, miraculously. And to see that, we only need to think of, of Jesus' own death. That is, the, the humanity, the rulers and authorities of the world, uh, the people in Jesus' day tried to stop God's plan in its tracks. Jesus had come along to save the world. And people looked at Jesus and they thought to themselves, well, I'm going to stop this guy in his track. I'm going to, I'm going to end this guy's ministry his, and, his, and, and what God is doing. And yet, remarkably, in that one act, in that most evil of acts, when people were trying to undo what God was doing, they actually achieved God's purposes for him. And in the greatest act of human evil, God achieved the greatest good in, in all history. And if God can turn that to good, if God can turn the greatest evil to good, then how much more can God turn the petty opposition of our day to good as well? God means to build his church. God means to save a people for himself and nothing can stop that. Well, that's encouraging, I think, as we face the years ahead. Uh, there's a review you might know underway uh, by the federal government looking at religious freedoms. They want to try and protect and preserve religious freedoms in Australia, which is a great thing, isn't it? It's great that they're trying to do that. Uh, unfortunately, that may end up going the wrong way, you know, like so many things. Uh, in an attempt to preserve freedoms, what may, may actually happen is that freedoms are further eroded. Or it may happen that actually for a few years, there's, there's, a, there's a season of uh, kind of stability and peace, but actually then... Uh, one or other political parties are so incensed by that that when they come into power, they reverse it and swing, back things the other thing, swing things back the other way. Things may actually become more difficult, not less. But in the light of Exodus 1, that doesn't really matter, does it? Because actually, as people set themselves against God and his purposes and his plans and the church and the people of God... God is still doing exactly what he promised. He's still writing the rebellion of humanity against him through the cross of Jesus Christ. And what's true of active opposition is also true of just ordinary, the ordinary circumstances of life, I think, as well. Uh, often in church life, it's a, you know, there's lots of struggles in church life. One of the struggles that we often have is to find enough people to do everything. All the things that we think are important to do. Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, growth group leaders, musicians, you name it. It's always hard to find enough people to do it. And yet, while it's important for us to put our shoulders to the wheel and to do the, all that we can to serve Jesus and to serve others, by doing those things that we think will help strengthen the church and bring people to maturity in Christ, it's important for us to, to do all that we can. Still, at the end of the day, at some point, you have to step back and go, well, you know what? If we can't sing any songs on Sunday because all the musicians have left or 
you know, there's, there's no one left. There's no one with the skills. There's no one to do visuals and sound. There's, there's no, you know, we can't have a Sunday school for a year because we just, we run dry of teachers or we can't have an organized youth group for whatever reason. At some point, you have to say, you know what? God can still build the church, can't he? Because if even active opposition can't stop God from building his church, then certainly, certainly the failure of our simple little plans and, and, and purposes won't stop God from building his church either. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what's true of God's big world-saving plans is also true of what God is doing in our lives. At the end of last year, some of you might remember Jacob Greatbatch preached on Philippians 1 and he reminded us uh, of those words from Paul where Paul speaks about his confidence that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ. That is, if you belong to Jesus, if you've entrusted your life to Jesus, if you belong to him, then God's plan is to make you more like Jesus. And nothing... No active opposition from outside. No sin within your life can stop God from doing what he has planned to do. If God's begun a good work, he'll make sure it finishes. So the Egyptians tried to undermine God's plans, but God's power was greater than their opposition. And God blessed them. God blessed his people. But in the next stage of this plan, Pharaoh takes things further. Slavery isn't doing the job, so he devises a more sinister plan. In verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. I love that verse. I love it, not in that way. But... uh, (laughs) I love, I love that they're on a delivery stool. I think to myself, I don't know much about having kids, but I just imagine that that would not be the best way to have a baby, sitting on a stool. But anyway. <laughs> That's right, I'll just, just move on from that. But it's, not only is a stool disturbing, but, but it's, a, it's a ruthless plan, isn't it? It's... It, it's, it's It's the kind of plan that Herod unleashes when he hears that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem to put all the children to death. And that's the plan that that Pharaoh unleashes here. It's It's a cunning plan, it's a ruthless plan, except for one problem. That is, the midwives won't do it. Verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Pharaoh cottons on that something isn't right, presumably when there's still lots of boys kind of turning up uh, in the neighborhood. And so he calls the midwives in and, uh, and, and, and they're so bold, they're so committed to this plan that they lie, they just lie straight to Pharaoh. It's remarkable, isn't it? They say, well, the Israelite women are, are too quick at giving birth. By the time we get there, the, the, the baby's already born. Nothing we can do. Uh, and again, like with the slavery, God protects his people. He continues to fulfill his promise. Verse 20, so, so God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. Slavery couldn't stop them. And now even trying to 
kill off the children can't stop them either. But what's interesting here, I think, is that in the first part of the chapter, we're not told how God blesses his people. Uh, we're, just to- we're just told that it happens. We're just told that they became more numerous. But in this second challenge that the people of Israel face, God gives us a window into one of the means by which he protects and preserves his people. The way that he does it is through these two women, Shifra and Puah. The events of this chapter, I think, then, are a wonderful kind of foil, a wonderful contrast to the things that happen later in Exodus. So when you think of Exodus, if you know the Bible at all, when you think of Exodus, what you probably think of is the, you know, the great miracles that God did in bringing the people out of Egypt. You know, think of the ten plagues, you think of the, the, the hail or, or the Nile turning to blood or, or, or whatever it is. Or you might think of, um, of, of God parting the waters of the Red Sea. Extraordinary, extraordinary miracles of God to save his people. But isn't it interesting here that in this first chapter, the way that God prospers and preserves his people is not through great supernatural kind of miracles, but through two women who decided to say no to the king of Egypt. Verse 7 is extraordinary. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They risked their lives. If Pharaoh had found out what they were doing, they would have, they would have lost their heads. But at the end of the day, their fear and their reverence for the God of heaven and earth was greater than their fear and reverence for Pharaoh. And it was through this simple and profound act of faith and of trust in God and commitment to God, it was through that that God was working to prosper and preserve his people. God's protection and God's deliverance in difficult circumstances doesn't always come through God parting the Red Sea. It doesn't always come through extraordinary miracles. Sometimes it actually comes through very simple things. I don't mean easy things, but simple things. What the women did was not easy, but it was simple. It was straightforward. No. Sometimes God's great acts of deliverance come through the simple obedience of ordinary people in ordinary lives. I don't mean any disrespect to midwives, but who would have thought that God would save a people, his people, through two, two midwives? Not even an army of midwives. It's just two. What's the collective noun for midwives? I'm not sure. But in the same way, I think we can be inclined to think that our, that our simple lives and uneventful lives, we can so easily think that they don't mean anything, that God can't use us. I, I reckon Shifra and Puah were not thinking to themselves, this will be God's great work of saving his people. They were probably just thinking to themselves, what do I need to do today? I need to trust God that he's more powerful than the king of Pharaoh, so that the king of Egypt, so that when Pharaoh says, you kill them, and we say, no, God, God can do great things. We can think that God isn't using us because nothing spectacular ever happens in our lives. But so often, God works through the ordinary obedience of ordinary people, which is so relieving, isn't it, for, for all of us, because we're all ordinary people. God works through our ordinary obedience, the ordinary obedience of people who fear him and who commit to serving him come what may. I think of the Old Testament character Esther, 
you know, the winner of a sordid Babylonian beauty contest. She found herself married to the king of Babylon. Uh, and and what, was her, what was her great act through which God saved his people? Her great act was to walk into the king's presence when she could lose her head and to say, this is not a great idea. Again, it's not complicated, is it? Not easy, but simple. And through that, God saved his people. Your life matters. And if you belong to Jesus, God can use you and God does use you. Not because you're a wonderful person, but because he chooses to invite us to be part of what he's doing in this world. And you might even be used by God without even knowing it. I suspect Shifra and Puah probably never knew what great things God had done through their, through their work. It was only in glory that their eyes were open to see what it was that God had done. And I suspect that for many of us, that will be the true of our lives as well. well. We'll get to the end of our lives and we'll think to ourselves, well, I haven't done anything good, have I? I've achieved nothing. I've just kind of plodded along. But we'll, we'll see on that great day when, when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'll say, yes, but Jesus, what was it that I did? So Jesus says in the parable, isn't it? What did I do? Well, when I was in prison, you visited me. You know, I, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Finally, on that last day, our eyes will be opened to see all that God has done through our lives and God, how God has used us for his glory and for the honour of Christ. But that brings us to the last thing, I think, which this chapter shows which is that even so much of what happens here in this chapter, it's on a grand scale. You know, it's about a nation, it's about a people who are oppressed, it's about multitudes of people. It's about conflict between two nations. It's about conflict between God and a nation. Nevertheless, the personal story of these two women is profoundly important. God shows in this chapter that he's not just concerned about that big picture of what he's doing in the world, how he's saving a people, but he's interested in the, in the individuals who know and trust him. Uh, Andrew Reid, in his little commentary on Exodus, points out something which is easily missed, I think, but is actually incredibly important. If you look back to verse 8, we're told there that there was this king who rose up over Egypt. It was this king who oppressed God's people, but notice something about this king. He's unnamed. The cities that the Israelites built are named. Pithom, Ramesses. But this Pharaoh is curiously unmentioned. To be unnamed in that culture was in some ways to be unhonoured. That is, the writer of Exodus wants us to know something. He wants us to know that whoever this king is, it doesn't matter. He's forgotten. His name has faded away in the annals of history. That's how insignificant his schemes were. He thought he was so clever. I'll stop you. But he's not even remembered, not even mentioned. But notice 
that there are two people in the second half of this chapter who are named. The two midwives, Shifra and Puah. It's the two women who feared God enough to keep those baby boys safe. And if leaving the king unnamed is an act of dishonour, then naming these two women is exactly the opposite. It's an act of honour. It's an act of honour by God himself to say these two women who lived ordinary lives of simple obedience, their names are remembered throughout history for their extraordinary act of obedience and faithfulness. They trusted God and God honoured them. The great king of Egypt is unknown. Think of all those pyramids and all the gold and all the finery and all the things that we know about Egyptian history. This king is unknown. But Shifra and Puah are not unknown. They're known by us and they're known more importantly by God. And God honoured them not just by naming them, he honoured them there at that time. Look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Isn't that so kind? <laughs> that they saved so many other people's children and then God gave them children of their own. What's the point? The point is this. Not only does God use our simple acts of obedience and service for his glory, that's great, isn't it? But actually God honours and blesses our humble service as well. Uh, it's not that our works are perfect or spotless, they're not. You know, we always do things with mixed motives, don't we? We never get any, everything 100% right. Nevertheless, in Jesus, God receives even our imperfect work with joy. The, the cross has crushed the curse of our sinfulness so that when God looks at our works, he can receive them through Jesus as a loving father. And in fact, God is so loving towards us as his children that he not only receives our good works with joy, but he actually prepares them in advance for us to do them. That is, he plans them so that, we, so that they're there for us to do. And so that he can receive them back with joy. Paul says in Ephesians, where God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Whatever you do, if it's done for the Lord and in service to him through Jesus Christ, it's not in vain. It's not forgotten by God. But through Jesus, God receives it with joy as a loving father. The New Testament describes our Lives lived for God in Jesus as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, holy and acceptable to God. Your ordinary work is not ordinary, but it's a spiritual act of service in honour to God. Uh, I, remember, uh, I remember when I was growing up, my mum would sometimes ask if we wanted to help her in the kitchen. Um, and we didn't always 
take that offer with great joy, I guess. But sometimes we did. She'd ask if we wanted to make um, a cake or biscuits or something like that. Um, and it was, you know, it was good fun. It was good fun because you always got to lick the bowl at the end or something like that or the beaters or whatever it was. But, you know, it would have been so much easier for her just to do that on her own, right? My, you know, my mum was a bit of a powerhouse. She's the kind of person who'd whip through the biscuits in 10 minutes or something like that, you know. But if the kids got involved, you'd be there for, you'd be there for an hour or an hour and a half or something. And so, how much butter was I supposed to put in, mum? What was, you know, what was, what was, what was I supposed to do? Oh, I've, I've spilt it all over the bench, you know. <laughs> <sighs> But it was a kind gift, actually, wasn't it? It was a loving gift of her to include us in that. She did it because she loved us and because it brought her great joy to have us involved in what she was doing in her life. Just because she planned those works in advance for us to do didn't mean that they, did, they pleased her any less. In fact, in some ways, it probably meant that they pleased her more that she invited us to be part of what she was doing and we received that gift and did it with joy. And it's the same with God. Just because God plans our good works in advance for us to do doesn't mean that he's less excited when we do them. It means he's more excited because he said to us, look, here's something that I've prepared for you to do and we say to him, yes, And we do it, not perfectly, but willingly, faithfully, and God receives it with joy. And God is pleased, and he honours us in our simple acts of loving obedience. No No matter where you are, if you serve God in Jesus Christ... You are serving God faithfully. You can be a teacher, you can be an electrician, you can be a baker, a student, you can be a stay-at-home mum or dad, you can even be a midwife. Your work done for Christ and in his name was prepared by God in advance for you to do. And through Christ, he receives what you do with joy. Well, whatever happens in this world, God is achieving his purposes. He's building his church. He's gathering his people. He's bringing them into maturity in Christ. And if you belong to Jesus, if you've entrusted your life to Jesus, then God is including you in his plans and in his purposes. He's preparing good works for you to do, and he's delighting in them when you do them. Let's give thanks to God. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you have a great plan for the world to put right what we have made wrong. And Lord, thank you that you have already done that in the most extraordinary way in Jesus. Overturning death and turning crucifixion and evil to life. And Lord, thank you that your plans can't be put back or stopped or waylaid but that what you have promised, you have done and will surely bring to completion. And Lord, we thank you that many of us have been swept up in what you've done. 
not because of anything that we've done or because we're worthy, but because we've seen that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, and we've put all our hope and our trust in him. And Lord, thank you that through that we've been brought into your family to be children of the living God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human will, but born of God. And Lord, thank you that as your children, you use us in your world to do your will. And Lord, many of us have undoubtedly been used for your great purposes and don't know it. Lord, give us the eyes to see. And Lord, we long for that day when our eyes will be open to see all the good that you've done through us and all the people who've been blessed by our simple acts of loving and faithful obedience. And Lord, help us to know that as we do that, as we live our lives today, as we do simple things, as we make lunch for the family, as we get the kids ready for school tomorrow, as we serve in our workplace, and as we minister in our church, help us to trust that not only have you prepared those things in advance for us to do, but that you receive them with great joy as a loving father. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.